Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 92 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. It's a late one here in uh, Vomitorium. What you, where are we? South. Dude, vomitorium South. south. Oh, man, it's... Deep in an underground hermetically sealed bunker. That's right. That's right. That's where we are. Uh, it's late. Uh, my name is still Dr. Jeff Winkle, and I'm here across the table from my good friend, most of the time, Dr. David <laughs> Noe. How are you feeling this this night? I feel kind of feeling like you. I'm feeling a little kind of cranky tonight. Yo, I'm heading in the other direction. Oh, excellent. Okay. Well, uh, on top of my typical crankiness, yes. I've layered some joviality. Wow, excellent. Let me, uh, keep it going. It's like an ice cream sandwich. It's, it's crankiness, <laughs> joviality, crankiness. So the jo- the joviality is is the is the creamy center. That's in, correct. In that sandwich, I like that you are wearing a black t shirt tonight, like I am. That's right. I'm feeling like Johnny Cash. <laughs> That's right. The man yeah. in black. Yeah, yeah. So, so explain the joviality. Where did you have a, like a great day or something? Uh, I had a nice day. It was a long day. I yeah. got a lot of exercise in. Had a lot of different obligations and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. This was kind of tacked on the end, and I was very worried that I wasn't going to be able to bring any entertainment or education to the people who subject themselves to yeah. this drivel. Well, it is early, so we'll <laughs> see where this goes. <laughs> but then when I showed up and found you in a bad mood, yeah, yeah, it yeah. tipped me in the other direction. Funny how that goes. Yes. yes I'm it, a contrarian. Yeah, I got you. I got you. I feel, You're I feel, a bit of a contrarian, aren't you? I am. I am. So I'm, I'm trying to kind of find my balance here because me playing grumpy guy is, is it's a, it's a, it's new, a stretch. It's a new role for me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I had a long, I had a long day. It was actually a good day. Can I ask about your day, Jeff? You, yes, it was a good day. How was your day? It was a long day, and I was with lots of children and yours, mine, and children um, not belonging to me, but under whose children of a lesser neighbor, yeah, something <laughs> like that, right? So I was in charge of them, taking them to the beach and to this and that. And, it's, a, it's a movie reference, Jeff. And, uh, I'm sorry, what was it? Children of a Lesser God. You don't know that movie? I I, I know it, right? I'm, oh my I, goodness! Are I can't you cranky? stop. I can't stop on every one of your puns, Dave. We would we would be here for hours. <laughs> goodness, right? you're cranky. <laughs> that was a pop culture reference. I was trying to throw you something delightful. Oh, okay, well. Anyway, keep, keep keep trying. Okay. So the kids were great today, but just being around young children all day is a is an energy suck. Mm. And I am a I'm a hardcore introvert, and so I need like alone time to recharge. And I didn't mm-hmm. get any of that today, so right. I think that explains the grumpiness. Today. Yes, yes. I got lots of alone time. You did. I got a lot of walking in. I had some social time too. Okay, keep rubbing it in. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking about alone versus social, yes, we're going to talk tonight about. Uh, Dido and Aeneas. Dido and Aeneas, right. We're in gonna... the middle of the book, mm-hmm. they're together, and by the end of the book, they are alone. They are alone, right, and um, some of them not alive. Right. right. And speaking <laughs> of approximately one half of the couple, speaking of alone time, yeah. we've got no shout-outs. No, not again, really? That's true. We have scraped the bottom of the barrel. That, well, we have some. We've gotten a lot of wonderful responses via email. That's recently. right. That it's, I, I've been pleased by the, the things coming in. And so I think we've got some in the chamber. We just can't pull the trigger yet, right? That's right. Didn't yeah. you tell me moments before we began recording that you check your email twice per week? Twice a week. I think that's healthy. Maybe right. so. Right? You don't want to be obsessed. But how would you know if of... we have emails coming in? I, I glanced. I see things. <laughs> I see things. I notice things. Right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. We've gotten some really nice correspondence. 
the folks have not yet agreed to have their name read on air. Right. Understandably. Mm-hmm. So we'll hold off on that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. But Dave, what are we talking about tonight? Again, it is Virgil's Aeneid. We're gonna get, we're gonna get to the end of book four. That's the plan. Okay. Book four. All right. Yes, and uh, to set the stage, set the table, uh, carrying on with the uh, culinary metaphor, which we have chosen as the guiding pattern for the whole production. Mm-hmm. We've put out the aperitifs. Yep. We've got the entree. Now comes the grisly dessert. Yes, this is not um, this is not the kind of dessert that that I would want to be served. No. Right? Well, what is your least favorite dessert? Oh, I gotta say, uh, that's an excellent question. Thank you. Um, and, that may be the first compliment I, I've gotten today. No, that's no, probably the second. <laughs> I think it's when dessert rolls around and and then somebody wheels out a cart that's full of Jello. Jello. You know, Jello with like a little whipped cream on top. Do you remember when we were undergraduates at what used to be called Calvin College? I do remember. Yes. And do you remember the dining hall called yes. Knollcrest or sometimes called Commons? Very well. And do you remember dessert was, the audience is not going to believe this, it was a small ceramic white plate on which there was a piece of lettuce. And on the piece of lettuce was a jello cube yes. with a grape suspended in the center of I, it. I remember it very well. I never touched it. Did that you, was dessert. Did you ever go for it? I was occasionally that desperate. <laughs> did you eat the lettuce? <laughs> I, maybe. It reminds me of how uh, Charles Darwin described the uh, human cell back in the 1860s. How? Um, something along the lines of a, a shapeless blob of uh, albuminous gel. <laughs> really? Yes. That's very close. It's wow. very close to how he described the human cell. My goodness. Which is ironic given its extraordinary complexity. But, right. But when I read that phrase, I thought, I know what he's talking about. It's that dessert they used to serve as an undergrad. Exactly. That's Except it. once you dug into that, it, there was nothing complex about it. No, no. <laughs> the grape at the center. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I guess in some but ways... to take it back around... Please. Yes. yes so, there is complexity here in this dessert. A lot of complexity. Although it's grim. It's grim. Right. So this would be... It's At a glance, it would look like that cube of, of jello on That's the lettuce, right. but there's a whole lot more to That's it. That's right. There, There's what you may want to call grimplexity. Grimplexity. Oh, nice. Excellent. All right. I'm warming up a bit. I Are think. you warming yeah, yeah. up? Before we dive in, though, least favorite dessert? You want to laugh at that uh, to the audience? Yeah, I was thinking, hmm, that's a tough one. Um, I don't like dessert a lot. It's much easier for me to talk about the things I like with dessert. Uh-huh. Fruit pies, you know, sophisticated chocolate things. Yeah. I don't like anything that has too much sweetness in it. I gotcha. I like things with a little bit of bitterness. Hmm. So so probably um, certain kinds of cake. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't like things that are cloying, right? Come on and just state your flavor. Oh, I see. Lay it on me. Don't don't try to trick me and lead me around. Right, exactly. Who wants to be manipulated by a dessert? Exactly. Right, some impertinent pastry. Correct. Yeah. Get to the point. <laughs> that and cinnamon. Cinnamon, good, bad? What? Good. Good, yes. Okay. I, I consume, I think, a lot more cinnamon than most people. I'm with you there. Dark chocolate with the bitterness? No. No? No. I used to, I used to eat quite a bit of that, but when I put cinnamon on... Um, you know, oatmeal or something like yeah. that. I sometimes use a shovel. That's oh, the, you just, that's you just, the amount. You pile it I, on. I do like it. Gotcha. Yep. Excellent. Hey, you got our opening quote? Oh, what is this podcast about again? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we're talking about food. That's We're okay. talking about food as a metaphor for our tour through the classics. That's right. Okay. Yep. The opening quote this evening is from The Art of the Aeneid by William S. Anderson. This is a work we have mentioned before. It was first published in 1969. A slim volume. A slim volume. with um, It's published uh, not by our sponsor, uh, but by Bocchese Carducci, mm-hmm. another fine publisher of yep. classics. Um, it's got a kind of a cartoonish cover. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that. I'm not, not liking, liking that. it. No, yeah, that's we, no we good. probably shouldn't throw the cover under the bus, right. but here goes anyway. This is from uh, page 51. This is quite a helpful quote, I would say. 
The long final tragic movement begins with a pair of balanced speeches, first Dido's, then Aeneas's. Dido's is introduced by a simile which compares her to a bacchanet racing wildly, fired to irrationality through the town. The contrast with Aeneas's pained but controlled response to the necessity of departure is patent. Signs of irrationality appear here and there in her speech, as when she accuses Aeneas of intending to slip away without speaking to her like a treacherous dog. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, she appeals for pity in the name of their love, and she deservedly wins sympathy. In fact, Aeneas does deeply pity and love her. Virgil's introduction could not be more lucid on this point. However, he cannot indulge his feelings, and it would not be fair or even considerate to indulge Dido's appeal for pity, not if she is ever going to face the fact of his necessary going. Mm. And just this last part. The apparent coldness and rationality of Aeneas's words, then, represent a heroic achievement on his part. Ooh. The conquest of his own passion and the concerned desire to bring Dido back to reality. He talks facts, not feelings. Hmm. They were not married, he insists, and he never tried to deceive her on this point. So he calls that a heroic achievement. That's right. Man, that's it's a, really interesting. It's stoic. It's right? very stoic. It's, it's stoic. It's right. It's the, um, it's the uh, mastery over one's passions. Right. Apatheia, right, yeah. is, the, is the Greek word. Not having any pathos, no feeling, right? Mm -hmm. uh, different than the Epicureans, we can send people back to the whole enchilada, whatever we called those episodes. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Uh, Epicureans, um, ataraxia, right? Yeah. Nothing disturbs you. A Stoics, no feeling. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess, again, this is why people don't really like Aeneas as a main character. Right. Because you can't sympathize with a person who has no feelings. Yeah. Or has conquered them to the point where uh, they don't play a role in his decision making. Right, right. Yeah, I think very few people would read um, Aeneas's words to Dido and at the end of it, say, wow, that was heroic. What an accomplishment. What an accomplishment, right. right. So, I mean, we've recognized uh, in um, the last few episodes that Aeneas is in kind of this impossible bind, mm -hmm. right? He is driven on by a, a fate that um, you know, he is out of his control, right? Um, and he's pulled this way and that by, you know, different voices. Um, he's, he's, um, he's dealt with things like the death of his father. Um, he's, he's trying to kind of manage the needs of his people at the same time. And trying to attend to his own kind of personal needs. And, and he's worried about his son. Don't forget uh, of that. Of course, right. Ascanius right. is the future. Right, right. So, I mean, there's, there's, I think there's a lot of reasons to to um, feel sorry for Aeneas. Yes. Or to at least to understand kind of where, where he's at. Um, but at the same time, this speech, which we'll get to, it's hard to kind of read that and, and, and not say, wow, um, that's cold. Yes. That's really cold in the moment of, of what he's dealing with and what, and what Dido is feeling. But this does raise the question... How is one supposed to respond to a crazed lover if the answer is no? This is true. Right, right, right. <laughs> I've never been in that situation. Right, 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 yeah. But I can imagine Aeneas being in that situation. She loves him, and she's she's at the brink of total insanity, mm -hmm. uh, and soon she'll be, she'll be pushed over the edge. Right. What kind of a response on his part would be satisfying? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, you know, by the time um, this is happening, by the time uh, we're getting these speeches... It's too late, mm -hmm. right? It's too late for anything. I think, um, I mean, we can explore this later, but um, for all of uh, Aeneas's future being governed and, and steered by this fate, mm -hmm. um, does that mean that the incident in the cave had to happen? Yes. Like he could, that, that they both could have kind of stepped away. Right. He could have said no. Um, right. He could have said no in that instance, and then they never would have had to dealt with any of this, this kind of thing. So right? you're blaming him. 
Um, I'm not a huge fan of Aeneas in this particular book, right? Um, um, I think that I think you can make too much of of Dido as just kind of a, a crazed lunatic. Okay. Um, I think that it, I think that there's many lines where, especially where, then there's a part in the in the in book four where Virgil breaks in. Yes, and he the says, apostrophe. And he I says, noticed that. You know, you know, you know, Dido. What did you hear? What did you see in that right. moment? He, he, uh, and he just doesn't get that. No. So there's a lot of things I think from Virgil himself that's yeah. saying this is where the sympathy should go. Right. Even though Aeneas has to fulfill what he has to fulfill. Right. Right. Excellent point. And if I can be just a little pedantic. Yes. As is my want. Right. Right. W o n t. By the way, <laughs> it's not W a n t. We got you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the apostrophe, right, mm-hmm. is the is the figure of speech in which the author talks to one of the characters. Yes. And like you said so well, he speaks to Dido, Virgil does. He does not speak to Aeneas. No. No, and if you if we use a Homeric comparison where there's only a couple of characters that get that that second person, right. it's um Eumaeus. Oh, yes. Eumaeus in the Odyssey and uh in the Patroclus in the Iliad and also oh. Menelaus in the Iliad. Menelaus. Which See, is, I didn't remember Menelaus. It's very odd. But generally speaking, in now, apo- now who's the pedant? <laughs> Apostrophe with Patroclus and Eumaeus, um it's not just the the um author breaking in. There's uh it's often interpreted as being there's um um there's affection. Right. Right. Well, in part because there's the notion that um Eumaeus was uh Homer's father. Yeah. That's one tradition. Right, right, right. So he's speaking to someone who's very, very close to him personally. Exactly, exactly, right. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so interesting stuff. But this this end of this book certainly pulled me as a reader in all kinds of different directions. Right. And these two central characters are being kind of you know drawn and quartered to by their nice. circumstance. Yeah, and we want to look as well at the second appearance of Mercury yeah. to Aeneas. Right, right. Because leading up to this point, so this is around about line 330 in the text of the poem itself. And we're mm-hmm. going to read some Latin, we're going to read some of Lombardo's translation, yep. maybe a little Krizak, and then analyze it. But we have another appearance of Mercury. The first appearance to Mercury comes to Aeneas in his sleep and says, what are you doing? Yeah. Traipsing around Carthage like a Tyrian, like a Phrygian prince. You know, you, you get out of here and, and be concerned about your destiny. Yeah. If it's not for your own sake, think about your son Ascanius. Don't deprive him and uh, of his right, his inheritance. Yeah. So Aeneas uh, bolts awake and, and then it's off. And it's off, right. He starts saying, okay, get the, get the ships ready. So I like this as the as the um, as Aeneas's uh, commanders are getting the fleet ready. Um, in Lombardo's translation, he says that um, Aeneas is he's gonna he's gonna find the proper occasion to break the news gently. Right. right? There's, there's never a right time for this. Not kind for of thing. something like that. Right. Um, and so, but they're not gonna sneak away because Dido already kind of has a sense that something's going on. So, David, give us a little Latin. Um, yes. Set that up. I'd love to. So this is line two hundred and ninety-six. At regina de los quis falera posit amantem. Praesain sit motusquex capet prima futurdros omnia tuta timens ea dimpia fama furenti detulet armardri classem cursumque parardri. Very nice. Can you read us the uh, Lombardo? Yes. Sure. Um, it goes thusly. But the queen, our lovers ever really fooled, had a presentiment of treachery, fearing all, even when all seemed safe. She was the first to detect a shift in the wind. It was evil rumor who whispered that the fleet was preparing to set out to sea. Very nice. So there's that rumor that we, I think we talked about last episode, right? That, yes. Uh, and um, in many texts, it's uh, capitalized because it's a personification. Yes. Right? Impia fama. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying in the last episode. 
Um, the, the, it's uh, it, rumors spreading out not just in Carthage but beyond the kingdom. Um, right. Yarbus, one of the failed suitors of Dino, hears the word. That's and, right. And is very upset about the Gaetulian nomadic king who yeah. was a son of a son of Jupiter and wanted to marry her himself. That's right. That's right. And so. Um, this is where kind of the this sparks the madness. Yes, the Bacchant. The Bacchant, right? So uh, she starts to rage throughout the city, and then we get this this um this wonderful um, simile here. As wild and furious as a Maenad when the holy mysteries have begun, her blood shaking when she hears the cry Bacchus in the nocturnal frenzy on Mount Cithiron in the mountain echoes the sacred call. This is thus Dido, right? Mm. So she's like a, a raving Maenad in the throes of Dionysian ecstasy. Yes, I love this Latin verb here. Yeah, Bacchor, Bacchari, mm. which means it's a deponent verb. It means to act like a Bacchant, like yeah. a follower of Bacchus. Yeah. And one of the things that I I think is is interesting about the comparison to um, a, a Maenad, and here at the risk of seeing things that aren't really there. Um, well, you're an academic, right? Right. That, that's our main job. That's our main job, right? Um, it's, I think that, you know, the comparison in, at one sense is an easy, easy one, right? We know what Maenads do. They go, they go, they twirl about, they, they, they go crazy on the mountain. They're shouting, they're dancing, they're, they're stomping their, their thyrsus. Yeah. They follow that pine cone shaped thing that right. Bacchus is carrying. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, in doing so, they are worshiping uh, a very powerful and, um, a powerful God and going through meaningful mysteries. Right. And as I read the end of this book too, is, you know, even as, as Dido kind of prepares her own suicide, she makes sure that she's kind of religiously correct about mm. it all. So I think that, that that comparison has kind of a, a layeredness, you know, on the top. Oh yeah, she's crazy like a man, and we know what they do. But at the same time, well, what you know, what is the point of these mysteries? It's something solemn at the same time. Mm. So it, I think it can be those. It can be it can be two things. Interesting. So, but after that that comparison, um, Lombardo translates. So finally, she corners Aeneas and says, "Well, I like that she corners Aeneas." Yeah, that's his translation of the verb compello, compellara. Oh, yeah. Which means to to, well, to speak forcibly to someone. Yeah. So that's really good. That is very good, right? Yeah. Dissimilaritiam sperdrasti perfida tantum. There's that vocative, right? How does uh, how does he take that, Lombardo? Yeah. Uh, at the, uh, at the beginning of the speech, we are. Yes. Right? Yeah. So traitor. Traitor. Yes. So if I can just dilate on that for a moment. Yeah. Um, this is the adjective perfidus aum, which means faithless. Right? Yeah. And this is the vocative that Dido hurls at Aeneas. You faithless one, you treacherous one. Yeah. I can think of some more colorful ways uh, to translate it. But what's interesting is that the Romans were notorious for hating the Carthaginians for their punica fides. Remember? Mm, that's right. They had that fides, that honesty or loyalty, but it was a punica fides, a Carthaginian, which means you can't trust them no matter what they say. Right. They're liars, right? And the noun form of that is perfidia. Right? Perfidia, faithlessness. Yes. So there's more than a little irony here in Dido hurling this kind of insult at Aeneas. Yeah. It's taking a, a cultural stereotype and applying it to those who are the ones that usually dole it out. Right. That's fascinating. And it, like, that's one of the things I love about Virgil, right? So it, Aeneas is, it, it, almost in every book, he's being kind of taken down notch by notch by notch. Right. And we, in all the stuff that we, um, you know, associate with uh, you know, kind of the cartoonish glory or grandeur of Rome, we don't find it in Aeneas. No. And it's that, it, it, Virgil says, you know, it was a um, it was a bloody thing to make this happen. Correct. It was a, it was a horrible thing to, That's put, right. to, to make this happen. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah, it, it, so Dido gives these two wonderful speeches. Right. And um, the first one I thought, you know, it, I mean, it begins with, you know, perfide, you know, traitor, uh, faithless one. Um, it's full of passion, but it's also... It's also very heartbreaking. 
this first speech is is she's kind of playing on emotions and, and she's basically saying you know you know hey um you were in the cave too right we're married right um so it's very it's 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 beseeching it's longing it's it's full of emotion right and then once Aeneas kind of gives this very cold response her second speech is just full of venom that's a good point and it just rage it rage right? right um I mean this is a strong speech but the the second speech is just is just full on Achillean rage and that's the one where she conjures up Hannibal right yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So if we can make a, a demand on our audience here, something we don't normally do, I would like to read lines 307 and 308, which is part of Dado's speech here, because they are rhetorically brilliant. Hmm. And uh, I'm very curious to hear, I, I mean, I've read it, but I don't remember, what Lombardo does with this. But I think the effect, even in the Latin, will hit those who don't know Latin. Hmm. So is that all right with you, Jeff? Please do it. Okay. Nec te nostra amor, nec te data dextera quandam, nec moratura tenet crudeli funera dido. So we've got this anaphora, nec, 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 three times, nec te, nec te, and right in the middle of it is noster amor, hmm. our love. Yes, 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 so yes, So it's yes, all yes. very negative and staccato, hard consonant sounds. Yeah. As she spits out this speech of not quite anger yet, right? Right. You characterize it as... Sadness or despair? It's despair. I mean, it, okay. But I mean, just I mean, uh, inflated with passion. Right? right. This is a balloon that's that's about to burst. And right. how does Lombardo take those lines? Right. I, again, it's impossible to render this into English or any language and kind of keep that that kind of that rapid fire mm-hmm. staccato nature of it. So, traitor, did you actually hope to conceal this crime and sneak away without telling me? Does our love mean nothing to you? Does it matter that we pledged ourselves to each other? Do you care that Dido will cruel die a cruel death? Hmm. So I guess you know Lombardo frames it with kind of question after question after yes, question. Right? Yes, and it is at least one question. But uh, in three hundred seven, there's the data dextera. So the dextera is the right hand, right? Mm. This is what he translate as translates as pledge. Yes. But as good of a translation as that is, like you were saying, it's impossible to get it perfectly. I think something's lost there a little bit because data dextera, right? The giving of the right hand. Yeah. It is kind of a formula for striking an agreement, but it's more intimate. In this sense, yeah, you know, they, they were hand holding lovers. Yes, and look yeah. what's happened. Look what's happened, and um, and here we we I, I come back to, um, I I can't remember what episode we did it in. Um, Virgil does not give us the scene in the cave. Right, he keeps that off stage. Right, right, and so which is of, of course now that that hand grenade the the pin's been pulled out explodes here mm. because we kind of get her side of it. And then Aeneas' side of it. So, I mean, Didos is basically says that, you know, that Dextra, that, that, that pledge, that's a marriage. Right. You know, like, weren't you there? And he will say later, no, uh-uh. No, I didn't sign anything. No. Yeah. <laughs> cheap move. <laughs> Very cheap move. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, and so then she, uh, it's you know, the rest of the speech is very is very pleading, but uh, there's also kind of um, she needles him too. Um, she says, you know, the you know what? Okay, fine, leave, but um, it, it's terrible weather. This isn't sailing season. And she basically tells him, even if Troy were still standing, you wouldn't leave for Troy in this weather. What's the hurry? Right. Right. And so she's kind of mocking him at the same time. And, um, and he never responds point to point to any of this stuff. Um, because in some ways he, he, he really can't. Mm. So Jeff, before we wrap up the first speech here of Dido, can you, can you summarize a few of the remaining elements? Sure. So, I mean, clearly, Dido feels deeply for Aeneas. She considers themselves having been married, so that's 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 very important. Um, but she also reveals in this speech is that um, it, 
not only does she consider herself married to Aeneas, she put everything on the line with him. She's I sacrificed everything. She says in, um, in terms of you mean socio political capital yes. leadership her credibility with her own people, all right. that kind of thing. Right. So we remember that when, you know, once Aeneas and Dedo kind of got together, the, they stopped building walls, they stopped building towers, everything kind of comes to a halt. And Dido basically says, okay, well, I'm all in with this guy. Right. And now she says, um, you know, the, the Libyan warlords that surround New Carthage, they hate me. And even my own Tyrian people, they abhor me. Propterte. Yes. Because, because of, you. of you. Look what you've done. And so she has no honor. Right. So not only has she been, you know, is her heart broken, um, but she's kind of lost everything, all of her clout, all of her political capital. She has spent it, and it's gone. So it's kind of like, like, what am I supposed to do now? She can't go back to her former group of friends, right? Once she has dated someone who's outside the group, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> right. Right. There is something very high school about all of this. I didn't right? say anything about high school, like, but you, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Exactly. Right. This is something that we all recognize, and right. it's one of the reasons this this still you know packs a punch so many mm. years later. Yeah. Never been turned into a like a, a comic musical or anything though. It's ripe for that, like Grease or something in those, in that vein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of material there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does Dido mention anything that could assuage the the struggle and the pain? Any kind of a trade off or a compensation? Yeah, she says at the end of this speech, she says, you know, if only you know, if you'd left me um, pregnant. Right, and um, I'd have a I have a child. I'd have a, a little baby Aeneas running around these halls. That's you know? right. If I had that, then 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 maybe this would be okay. I could live with it. Right. Yeah. She says uh, it's a it's a parvulus Aeneas, right? A little Aeneas, right? A mini Aeneas. And she says it's not so much that she would have a baby, but she says this little baby would remind me of you. Hmm. And so we kind of the, the last kind of you know living token of my of my lost love. At least I would have that. That's a little grim, isn't it? it? It's very grim. It's very desperate. Right. Right. And so that's more or less how she she um, she ends this speech, and as we'll see in her second speech, she goes into full rage mode, and she seems right. to be much more kind of um, she seems to have kind of made up her mind of kind of how how she herself is going to end. Okay, and she's going to go out uh, and uh, end up with a bang. Right. Yeah. A blaze of glory, you might say. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Right. So that's the end of the first speech. Yes. And I think we've got time before the break. Mm-hmm. I know people tune in primarily for the ads. They think, what are we gonna? What are those guys gonna say next? How are they gonna keep it fresh and lively? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good yeah, question. It's a very good question. Thankfully, we have a little time to think about it. But before we get there, we have uh, his response, his yes. first response, right? Um, which, uh, as uh, in Lombardo's translation, it's a brief reply. Okay. He's not as long-winded as the as Dido. Dido gets two speeches, and he just gets one. Right. Now, I want. I want to. Uh, this this struck me as I was reading this. And um, you can tell me if I'm way off the mark with this or not. Well, I will. Um, yeah. Right. I'm, I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> so you know, part of Aeneas' problem thus far is that, you know, we saw him stop in all these places and, hey, this is this is new Troy. Nope, move on. Hey, this is new Troy. Nope, move on. Right. He's got to find his own path. So right? is, is that indecisive or just hoping that the journey is over too soon? Yeah. I, I, I think, think it's the latter. I think it's the it? latter as well. Um, he doesn't really want to go through the struggle. Right. Exactly. Right. And so I think what I, I saw here is, um, this sounds very dissertation-y. Okay. Um, is there a colon in it somewhere? Is, is oh, oh, there's colons, maybe. Several, <laughs> several abstract <laughs> nouns. Right, right, right. Exactly. Um, with some kind of uh, gerund or gerundive in the title. Like That's right. Finding Aeneas, colon. <laughs> right. But it struck me that not only is Aeneas kind of stuck in Carthage and kind of not where he's supposed to be, but he's stuck in the wrong story. Uh, because the, this exchange between Dido and Aeneas really reminded me a lot, and it, it would uh, it wouldn't surprise me if Virgil had this in mind. 
is the exchange between Medea and Jason. Oh, there are shades of tragedy all over. And, right. And there'll be an explicit reference later to the um, the Supper of Thyestes, you know. The, oh, yeah. The Atreus and Thyestes conflict. Sure, right. But, the, you know, the, the coldness of Jason to Medea when he basically says, you know, hey, I know we've got a couple of kids and it's been That's great, right. but I've got to go with this. I've got to go marry into this family. I've got to marry into the Corinthian royalty. Right. So I'm just going to leave you. And, and then Medea, the Medea, like Dido, is kind of, has that bottled anger at first, yes. and then she just lets it all out. That's right. And so I'm, I was I'm trying to make the argument that Aeneas is kind of, he's stuck in somebody else's story. Well, we had a reverse Penelope. Yeah, we had a reverse, exactly. So right? so how is uh, J- Jason, how is Aeneas behaving here? As He's like, he's. I mean, he's just like Jason. He's not even a reverse Jason. He's, he's a Jason he's, Jason. He's a Jason Jason, right? And so he's got to get out of this. He's got to get out of this tragedy. He's got to get to his own story. Would you right. say he's standing next to Jason? He's adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's brutal. <laughs> but I love it. Sorry. <laughs> you challenged me at the beginning of this episode, right. Mr. Cranky Pants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm warming up. All right. I'm warming up. And then uh, Dido, too, I think when she goes off to her, her untimely end and with her sister Anna, Shades of Antigone and Ismini. Absolutely. Right? So she and so she's stuck in a, in the wrong story. Both of those are Sophoclean. Yes, exactly right. Both of those are Sophoclean. Right, and and we all we have the reference to you know the uh, the Bacchae. Right. Um. What we'll see, Adido is compared to Pentheus. Yes. So another tragic reference, Orestes. She's also compared to, and so. And, the, and this is why Ovid said everybody loves Book Four, and that's it. And that's it. Yeah. Because it's tragedy. Yeah. The rest of it is is epic. Good epic. This is full on tragedy. Right. So I think that's. Uh, so my argument here is that um, Aeneas is not at root a tragic character. He's in the wrong story. He's in the wrong story. And so he's got to leave, but everybody else dies. Are there only two genres, though? If it's not epic, it's either tragedy or comedy, right? Tra- right. And the Aristotelian definition of tragedy people behaving better than they do in real life. Right. And the, and the Aristotelian definition of comedy people behaving worse. Worse. Yeah. So is Jason a comic figure? Um, did I say Jason? Aeneas. Is Aeneas a comic figure? Well, I think he's a comic figure. Then ultimately, his path leads to life. I think. I think also, uh, you know, comedy. You could also define, um, you know, comedies end with a wedding, tragedies end with a funeral. Right. You know, comedies are about life, tragedies are about death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in that, Aeneas's path is is leading towards life and uh, leaving this death behind. It's comic. Not, okay. in, not that he's going to make us laugh. He's not a very funny guy. Okay, so let's combine here pop culture and pedantry. Can we do that? I think we can do it. All right. Yeah. So there was a movie that I haven't seen. Okay. Four Weddings and a Funeral. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've seen it. I have not seen it. Oh, you it's haven't? It's Hugh Grant, right? It's a, it's a... Do they call that a chick flick? It, it, it never looked like it was my cup, cup of tea, but I remember it, it, the splash it made. Yep. Okay. Yep. So I think that there's a word in Plautus, the Roman playwright, uh, tragicomoidia. A tragic comedy. Mm-hmm. So if tragedies end in a funeral and comedies in a wedding, then that movie would be a tragic comedy. Tragic right? comedy. Four weddings and a funeral. Right. Good. Uh, yes. Very good. I mean, like like the Alcestis. Yes. Right? It's, but what do we have here? We have one no wedding and one funeral. Well, Dido thinks it's a wedding. Right. So it's a, it's a, it's a semi-wedding so there's, and a funeral. There's the rub, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> she has both tragedy and comedy. Yes. She has a wedding and a funeral, but they're in the wrong order. No, no, yes, exactly. And Aeneas... He has neither. He's neither, right? He's kind of he's kind of standing aloof on the on the sidelines. So he's in the wrong story. He's in the wrong story. 
And so he's got to get out of book four and he's got to get back into his proper story. Shall we warm up a little bit of Aeneas's response speech, the first response speech? Yes. Okay, let me read a few lines of the Latin here okay. and then you can go to town on uh, Lombardo, please. Dixerat eleo vis manatissim otitenebat, luminet obnix suscurdram subcorda premebat, tandem pauca refert ego te quite plura mafando, e numerar revales numquam regina negabo. Notice Virgil rhymes those two lines at the end, which is very uncommon in um, yeah. in epic poetry, as you know. Yeah, it sounds it sounds weird. It does. Yeah. <laughs> so can you read us what uh, Lombardo sure. has there? Lombardo, right? Lombardo. Negabo fondo Lombardo. Lombardo. Dido finished. Aeneas Jupiter's, Aeneas, Jupiter's message still ringing in his ears, held his eyes steady and struggled to suppress the love in his heart. He finally made this brief reply. My queen, I will never deny that you have earned my gratitude in more ways than can be said. Nor will I ever regret having known Elissa as long as memory endures and the spirit still rules these limbs of mine. I think that's kind of really interesting language that he uses there. So, you know, my queen, it's mm. very formal. Mm-hmm. And um, he speaks of her in the um, in the third person. Yes. Right? He mean, does address her as Regina. Regina. In response to her perfida, right? Mm-hmm. Traitor, treacherous. Right. But this is not a term of endearment, right? I mean, no, this, it's, it's, it's distant. It's, it's very distant. Right. And maybe partially motivated by fear. Is that possible? It's time to stop acting like this is a personal relationship and seek a kind of um, detente of cultures. Mm. Is that going too far? No, I don't know. Am I, I the one who now is seeing things that aren't there? No, I'd like this. I like As this. it moves away from romance, he's got to reestablish diplomacy. Right. Or else risk being uh, crushed. Exactly. Because so he's still needy. This is Anderson. He's got to lay down facts, and he's, it's facts over feelings. Yes. Yeah. Now, I, I have to say that um, Lombardo chose to translate the word uh, love. He tried to, what, what was it? Tried to squelch love. Suppress the love in his heart. Yes. And... But the word there is kuram, hmm. which is a little broader. It can include love, but it's more something like apprehension. Hmm. So, again, who am I to criticize Lombardo? It is a brilliant translation. Right. Uh, but translating it as love, I probably tips a modern audience in the wrong direction. Right. You know that's 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 really key here too. I, I mean, when I when I read that, um, my mind my mind paused on that right because it that says so, if it is love as we kind of understand Correct. it that says something about kind of Aeneas being torn here. But if it, it, it it's Kuram, you said yes, it's Kuram. There's a, there's many different ways that I think you could take that. Right, which he was, was pushing it down in his heart. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so I really think you know apprehension is not very poetic, but or anxiety because that that opens up the possibility that he's not so much concerned about how she'll take it, yeah, as to what will happen to him if she takes it wrong. Exactly, exactly. Which I think is that's that's the way this reads to me. Right. So on Anderson's interpretation, this is not the heroic squelching of emotion if it really is affection that he's trying to hold down. Yes, 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 yes. Let me read a little bit more of Lombardo's translation here. So. Um, and here he just kind of, it's like he brings out the clipboard and he's got his checklist here. He says, I do have a few things to say on my own behalf. Yes. Can we stop there a second? <laughs> yes. Because the line, this is uh, line 337, 337. Uh, for those of you who study Latin, you want to take out a pencil and a notebook here, may I humbly suggest, and write this one down because this is a great line. Pro re pauca loquar. I will say a few things. Pauca loquar. Pro re, right, on behalf of the case or in my defense. It's a, that's a great phrase, pro re pauca loquar. Hmm. So it's, it's a courtroom language. Exactly. It's yeah. very, very quotable. <laughs> that's great. That's great. And so here he starts laying out the, the facts. He says, I never hoped to steal away from your land in secret. That's one. Yeah. And you should never imagine I did. Two. 
Nor have I ever proposed marriage to you or entered into any nuptial agreement. Three and four. If the fates would allow me to lead my own life and to order my priorities as, as I see fit, the welfare of Troy would be my first concern and the remnants of my own beloved people. That's five and maybe six. Right. Troy and people. So it's, he's, not, he's, uh, he's barely mentioned her at all. Right. So is, is he pitching woo here? Uh, pitching woo? Don't you know the phrase pitch woo? Oh, no, what, no, I don't know that at all. What is that? I'm surprised at you, Winkle. W-O-O? Yeah, to pitch woo. What does that mean? This is how a man speaks lovingly to a woman in order to win her affections to his side. Oh, I was just as wooing. As one woos. I've never heard you don't pitch it. I think you can. You can. <laughs> <laughs> All or right. You can pitch woo. You can turpentine it. I think there's a wide variety. Is there of... any things that you can do with the woo? Anyway. All right. All right. So... Um, no, he's not. I don't think he's pitching woo here at all. This is quite the opposite. No, that's what I'm saying. Oh, okay, I'm trying right. to draw attention to the fact that yeah. there's nothing there's no woo. loving or kind in here. It's pro re pauca loquar. Right. And basically, basically he's saying like, I love this too. He says, you know, if the fates would allow me to lead my own life, you're kind of expecting, I would happily run off with you. But that's not what he says. He doesn't care about her at and all. He says, no, he says, my, 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 um, my priorities are with my own people. So, I uh, wish Troy still stood. Uh, yes. Rule my people. <laughs> Rule my people. So, That's hard. That you you really think hard. this is part of what turns her from despair to rage? I think so, too. I mean, it is it is very, very cold, right? Um, and, you know, someone in the throes of passion and emotion um, aren't going to say, oh, that sounds very logical. I'll accept that and, and simmer down. Yes. Right? Well, this is my point at the beginning, right? What do you say to a person who's crazily in love with you if the answer is, no. Un- unrequited. Right. Uh, maybe to speculate here, this is why these conversations seldom happen. Mm. Right? People just more kind of drift apart. because They ghost each other. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Be- they, uh, they're they left on red. Yes. Exactly. Wow. If, if, Listen, to you with the hip lingo. Oh, I'm clutch. Yeah. What can I say? <laughs> I learned that word this week. What, on red? No, clutch. Clutch. Is that is that what the kids are saying? That's what they're saying. It's okay. clutch. clutch. I like that. I think Lombardo is clutch when it comes to translating Latin. Without a doubt. So one party is very, very keen. The other party is not. They just don't talk. Yeah. Because it ends up looking like this. Right, right. So I, I, one of the questions that this also raises too is, is this, is in what Aeneas says here, is, is this what pushes her over the edge? I think so. Right. Um, and again, that question that even within the strictures of fate, um, what you do between point A and point B, there's a lot of free will there. Yes. Um, so the, the thing in the cave didn't have to happen. Okay. Aeneas could have said something different here. Dido could have made another choice. And so I think that um, the, kind of the excuse of, well, this is all fated, um, doesn't quite get you to a satisfying end or mm. an interpretation of, of what this book is all about. Hmm. Let's get right to the end of the speech yeah. because he will uh, invoke divine agency yeah. as an excuse for his own behavior. And this is line 358. De tulatipsa de um manifestin lumina vidi intrantem murderos vocem quis ardribus hausi. Which is, I saw, the, I myself saw the God in the open air manifestin lumina. How does Lombardo take it? I saw the God myself in broad daylight. Broad daylight. Yep. That, that's better than what I said. Yeah, entering the walls and heard his very words. So stop wounding both of us with your pleas. Right. It is not my own will, this quest for Italy. Yes. So, so the, there Aeneas is saying, this, exactly. is, this is fate. That's, that's what the, the what do you want me to do? That's right. Right. He says, the park guy, right? They rolled by in their El Camino. <laughs> that's right. I'm trying to make that into a running gag or a rolling gag. 
So all three of them are in the front of the, of the El Camino. Uh, how there's many, of, how many a, seats are there? Uh, it's a, I mean, it's a small cab. One of them could be in the back. It's like a pickup, isn't it? Yeah, so it's, it's like a, a mini pickup. It's like a car pickup. It's very liminal. It's, it's very <laughs> un, unsettling. Yeah. So what's in the back? Well, I think one of the park I could be in the back. You get two up front and one in the back. Okay. Yeah. I don't know which one. Uh, yeah. Probably the third one, um, Atropos. The one who, uh, who cuts, the, cuts thread. the thread. She's got to be sitting in the back. <laughs> I think so. Because he's got those giant scissors. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to fit in the cab. No, exactly. She's back there with the scissors. That's I like right. It. I like it. So he wraps up and says, I drank it in, housey. I, I drank him in as he entered the walls and his voice with my ears, right? I, mm. I soaked it up, housey. So stop firing me up in Kendera. So there's the verb. Hmm. Foreshadowing, foreflaming. Oh, it is a little bit of, uh, not just a little bit of foreflaming there. It's a lot of foreflaming. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. we know about uh, Dido's grisly demise. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, he says, finally, I go to Italy. I'm headed to Italy. Non sponta. It's not my own decision. It's not my own, my own idea, yeah. No. So, persuaded? Um, no, I'm not persuaded. No, you I mean, think he's a cad. He he is a cad. I think there's there's wiggle enough wiggle room enough here that he could have done this differently. He could have handled this in a better fashion. Um, yeah, you no, know, that no, I'm sticking with that. Okay, that's where well, I am. Well, speaking yeah. of handling things in a better fashion, yes? it's time for the ads. It is. All right, Jeff, I've got one word for you. Okay, brackish tang. That's two words. Say them quickly. <laughs> Brackish tang. There you go. Okay. What am I talking about? You're talking about what you won't find in a cup of coffee brewed by ratio. Yes. Is that uh, that I, is what I'm talking about. Okay. I remember it was, seemed like two years ago, it was 2020. Mm-hmm. We were doing some episodes on, what were we doing some episodes on? It was on uh, Thermopylae. Right? Yes. A yeah. Lion at the Gates, part one and two. We were using the brilliant book by Peter Green. Yes. Uh, the Greco-Persian Wars. And he was talking about how... Uh, Leonidas and the the Spartans were approaching the gates of Thermopylae. Yeah, and what was wafting up uh, out of the Euboean Straits? A brackish tang. A brackish tang. Yes, yeah. Which would ruin their shields and their spears and their swords and so forth by rusting stuff out. Yeah, yeah. What, yeah. what don't you want rusted out and corroded? Uh, my coffee. Your coffee maker and your coffee. Yes. So who has uh, solved this problem? I believe it's Ratio Coffee, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Mark Helwig. That's right? right. And his crack team. Can you tell us more about it? Yes. Um, well, I have the Ratio 8. Uh, I, I used to have the Ratio 6. It's you went eight. up two ratios. I went up two ratios. I had these, uh, the, I have the, the granddaddy now. I had the little brother. Yeah. Did you skip the 7? Um, there, is there a 7? No. There's no 7. You go from six to the eight, just, just right. even numbers mm-hmm. for ratio. Um, I love my machine. Every morning, brews the perfect cup of coffee. I've got the hand-blown borosilicate carafe. Nice. For the pour-over? For the pour-over. Doesn't yeah. Mrs. Winkle say that's the nicest pour she's seen? She, it is. Exactly. She loves the way the the, 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 the carafe just kind of... It's, it's a work of art just to yeah. watch that coffee come out. Yeah. Are you just a poor boy also? <laughs> but my story is seldom told? No. <laughs> what no, that's Queen. What? Oh, I see. You're doing. You were going to Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, you were doing Bohemian Rhapsody. Right? There. Was yeah. that Simon and Garfunkel? It was. Yeah, okay. the boxer. Yeah. See, I know something. You do know something. We don't even have. Our, we don't even have our pop cultural references okay, lined come up. Come on, let's right? go. Okay. <laughs> so no, I I love I love every morning you got to what what's what's the Fahrenheit? How how many degrees? Two hundred degrees 200 Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. Coming you know, out water of, boils at two twelve. It's uh, so we're just right at the boiling point. Yes. So after the bloom stage, there's no none of the nasty CO two hanging around. It's like the Dido of coffee makers, right? <laughs> yes. It goes from 
nothing to exploding Illusion. volcanically. Like that. Right. Like that, yep. But noxious fumes waft off into the biosphere. They're off-gassed, and then all that's left is the um, is the scalding hot pour-over. And it's, no, there's no scalding. The, well, there's it, it's it's hot. Okay, it's hot. It's hot, but there's no scorch pad. No, there's no scorch no, pad. No, right. no Kindle brick. No, none, none of that. None, none of that. Um, perfect no. cup of coffee every single morning. No, I brew directly into a hulking flagon. Really? Yes, I have skipped the borosilicate glass. What, why would you? do it's that? It's beautiful, but I, I I can't drink all of my coffee by myself at I, once. I'm I the only you. coffee drinker in my family. Really? So I always brew directly into the hulking flagon, which has uh, an oyster color to match. The uh, oyster and walnut accents of my ratio eight. And you just carry that thing around all day? Well, I have a special rubber plug that you put in the top. It keeps the coffee very, very warm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, these days here in Michigan, it's been very hot. It has been pretty very much hot. insufferably. So sometimes what I do is I get a large glass of ice and I pour this delicious sweet coffee over the ice and I got ah. iced coffee. Like the French say, viola, iced coffee. Viola, exactly right, man. You are the multilinguist, aren't you? Uh, so, Dave, if our listeners want to get in on this, what should they do? They should go to ratiocoffee.com. Ratio is a Latin word, R-A-T-I-O, coffee.com. And they should enter the special coupon code. It was A-N-C-O-7-C. Why does it seem like you're trying to remember? <laughs> it's the August coupon code. Yes. Anco. Anco. Ad nauseum coffee. A-N-C-O-7-C. 15% off. Check it out. This episode of Odd Nauseum also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Dave, I believe it's the 50th anniversary for Absolutely. that company. Absolutely. Yep. yep. They've got their they got their um, offices. Uh, offices. Is what you're looking for. Yes, in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's correct. And for the last 50 years, they have been putting out uh, volume after volume of um, incredible translations That's and right. commentaries right. from all corners of academia, uh, especially classics, the classics, especially, course. but um, from from many other different disciplines as well. Um, you and I have, have several of their volumes on our shelves. We've used them personally. We've used them in class. Um, I love Hackett. Dave, what do you like about Hackett? Well, I like everything about them. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that they promote this podcast. Yes. And not only for selfish, pecuniary reasons do I like that. I like the fact that they are behind the classics and uh, they want to see this lovely body of knowledge preserved, extended, and uh, for it to reach more people who can enjoy it. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And we approached them with this idea. We're trying to popularize the classics. They said, we're on board. Yeah. And they haven't fallen off board since. You know, what, what really impressed me is when we first got in contact with them, we weren't put off and say, oh, you've got to talk to this flunky who's going to connect you with this flunky. No. Um, we got right to, the, right to the top and they yeah. were laid back and they were saying, this sounds like a great idea. We're going to take a chance on you guys. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. And I want to talk about some new titles that they have coming out. Yes. So they have a new title this fall from Stanley Burstein. And uh, this is The Essential Greek Historians, hmm. a collection of texts representing the development of historiography in the ancient Greek world. Now, I don't know a lot about this, probably less than you, uh, but there's a definite development between, say, Herodotus and Thucydides, mm-hmm. from Thucydides to Polybius, mm-hmm. Polybius to Plutarch, and that's what this book covers. So a fascinating topic. They also have new Plato and Aristotle translations from David Reeve. They've got Plato's Laws, Aristotle's Chemistry. That guy knew something about making coffee, I think. Oh, without a doubt. And Aristotle's Theology. So these are going to be on the... Hackett website very soon. They're a part of the uh, Aristotle series. Yes. Yeah, so listeners, uh, go to HackettPublishing.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-T-T Publishing.com. 
Check out their wide variety, their huge selection there. Uh, find the texts that you want, drop them into your little uh, digital satchel. And Dave, what's the coupon code? It's the coupon code is simple. It's uh, AN, ad nauseum, 2022. And if, and, if you, and if and when you do that, that right. will get you 20% off. Plus free shipping. Plus free shipping. Free shipping. That's huge. It's incredible. Yep. So check it out. All right, Dave, as we get back into it, I believe you've got some more wisdom from uh, Mr. Anderson. Yes, William Anderson, The Art of the Aeneid, page 52. The seeming coolness of Aeneas only fires Dido. Nice antithesis. His rationality only begets irrationality Mm -hmm. in her. This is what you were saying, Jeff. Her second speech uses the conventional phrases of the abandoned woman to deny Aeneas all humanity pour scorn on his reasonable statements, and finally allude to her imminent death. As if to confirm her complete lack of self-control, Virgil describes her sudden collapse at the end. Aeneas consequently cannot reply to her wild accusations, but must watch her being carried from the room unanswered, uncomforted. It is the last moment he sees her alive. With this dramatic interruption, Virgil destroys the balance of speeches. Aeneas cannot justify himself to Dido or restore her to rationality. So, um, for better or for worse, well, worse here, uh, Dido gets the last word. So, she, I think she kind of, she wins this kind of rhetorical battle, so to speak. But she's going off to her death, and Aeneas is going off to this new this new life. Um, and a new wife. And, and a new, new land. And all of that sort of all thing. All that kind of stuff. But, but the, the language here is, is, so, is so fiery and so impassioned. Um, shall I give a, little, a bit of the beginning in Lombardo's translation? Yes, please. So, she says to, well, it's just, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. So while he's speaking, she looks him up and down with icy sidelong glances, stares at him blankly, and then erupts into volcanic fury. Uh-huh. That's good. Isn't that good? It's a seek akkensa profatur. Thus uh, uh, lit up akkensa. Remember that he said at the end of his speech, don't get all burnt, yeah. right? Nekte and kendere. Now she's burnt, and then she starts profatur. She starts breathing fire. She says, your mother was no goddess, you faithless bastard. And you aren't descended from Dardanus either. No, you were born out of the flint in the Caucasus and suckled by tigers in the wild of Scythia. If I may interrupt. Yes. Uh, what Lombardo translates there as uh, faithless. Was that it? Faithless bastard? Yeah. It's perfida again. It's the same word. It's the same vocative from perfidus. Interesting. It's so interesting. So that's the theme she's developing, you know. Historically, you Romans think we Carthaginians are liars. No, the lies on the other foot. Right. And so the, the whole... <laughs> The the whole enmity between Roman Carthage here starts here. And, That's right. And the first act of perfidy, according to Dido, is is from, on the part of the Romans, the proto-Roman here. Yes. Yeah. Now this is really interesting too, and I'm guessing that the this reflects the Latin. Um, Dido almost kind of backs up, and she almost speaks to herself here. Mm. She says, oh, "Why should I hold back? Did he sigh as I wept? Did he even look at me? Did he give into tears?" Or show any pity for the woman who loved him. So she's speaking to him right. almost as if he's not even there. Yes. And and so she kind of, yeah, she kind of dehumanizes him That's even right. as she's speaking to him. Well, she previously, you know, said he was the son of a tiger, right? Right. Some uh, some mountain or some tiger uh, suckled you. That's what, that's the kind of a monster you are. Right. We don't really use animals so much anymore in our insults because we're no longer an agricultural society, do we? Not, yeah, no, you don't really, like, you dirty dog. Right, you know, but people don't say those kinds timey. of things. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Huh. 
But Dido does get to the point where she kind of throws up her hands and finally says, okay, go. That's it. Just just get out of here. Yeah. And this is line uh, 381 and following. E sequeri taliam wentis peta regna per undas. Spare equidem medii quid pia numina pasunt. Supplicia haurusum scopolis et nomina Dido. Saipe wo ka tu rum. And we'll just stop right there. Yeah. And how does Lombardo take those? So he, he translates, um, sail to Italy. Find your kingdom overseas, but I hope if there is any power in heaven, you will suck down your punishment on rocks in mid-ocean, calling Dido's name over and over. Gone I may be, but I'll pursue you with black fire, and when cold death has cloven my body from my soul, my ghost will be everywhere. You will pay, you despicable liar, and I will hear the news. Word will reach me in the depths of hell. Interesting. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and the, the vocative here, improbe, is different than the two previous ones, the perfide previous mm. ones, the perfide, perfide. Is this the you despicable liar? Yes, that's yeah. improbe, you improbe. dishonest, you dirty dog. You dirty dog, yeah. <laughs> but it's building, right? I would say that this is an interesting uh, word choice on Virgil's part because it's building. It goes it goes well with your earlier claim that the first speech was grief, the second speech is rage. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um. but I, it also kind of remind me of the um, of the Cyclops curse of, of Odysseus here. Mm. Right? Um, so you remember that Cyclops says to yes. Poseidon, um, "I know he's fated to get home. Um, you know, my first choice is he doesn't get home. Right. But if he has to get home, then may there be misery between here right. and there." And Dad says a similar kind of thing: "Sail to Italy, but I hope that there's going to be shipwrecks. That's right. And I'm going to, you know, my my ghost is going to follow you on your heels every step of the way." Yeah. So this is Odyssey Book Nine. Yeah. Right. It's all fun and games till somebody pokes an eye out. That's right. That was the name of the episode. It's a great one. Go listen to it. Yeah, that's the title you gave it. If was I'm it? not yeah. mistaken, yeah, of that course. Sounds like me. Yeah, I will hear. She says three eighty seven. And the the fama, the fama, right, will come to me, the report will come to me in deepest hell. Yeah. And there's a little foreshadowing there as well, because we do see Dido again. Book six. Book six, um, as a shade, as a ghost. And of course, there, as a ghost, she ghosts him. She she literally ghosts him, it as a, a ghost, yeah. That's right. It's a replay of the uh, Achilles and Odysseus. Yes, or Achilles. No, I'm sorry. Odysseus and, and Ajax. Odysseus and Ajax, yes, thank in you. the underworld, yeah, right. Another brilliant move on Virgil's part, but it's, we got to get to book six before we can talk about That's that. That's right. Yeah, we're getting ahead of things. That's right. Yeah. So how does Aeneas respond to this? Well, ad pius Aeneas, but pious Aeneas. There's that adjective again. Mm-hmm. So this is Anderson's squelching of all passion for the sake of heroism. Yes. So we, uh, Lombardo's, uh, he, tried, uh, he translates uh, pios here as loyal and true. Mm. Aeneas, loyal and true, yearns to comfort her. Mm-hmm. Soothe her grief and say the words that will turn aside her sorrow. He sighs heavily, although great love, there's that word again, mm-hmm. has shaken his soul. He obeys the God's will and returns to the fleet. Yeah, so here I think he gets the he gets the palm, Lombardo does, because uh, P.S. Aeneas, sometimes it's wise to translate one Latin adjective with two English ones. Mm. What was it? Loyal and trustworthy? Loyal and true, yeah. Yeah, loyal and true. And then the verb, uh, cupit, he has a longing, although he, he truly desires cupit. To soothe her grieving, uh, and then there's the kuras again, and what is turn aside her anxieties? Turn, yes, turn aside her sorrow. Yeah, her sorrow with his words. But then the word amore does really appear here. It does, unlike in the previous passage. Okay. So labafactus, uh, animum labafactus, right? Having fallen in his soul with great love. So that humanizes Aeneas in the moment. He does. Here, right? So see, Jeff, he's not so bad, so not, he, not such a cad. He, he pities her, he loves her, but he also recognizes that there's nothing he can do in, anymore in the yes. moment. And why? 
he's got to obey the divine commands. Mm -hmm. We didn't really talk very much about whether uh, his devotion to piety in terms of I must do what the gods tell me make him a better or worse character. Mm. I think for most people makes him a worse character. Makes him a worse character. It's hard to, to see it any other way. Mm-hmm. And so the, the fleet, start, the the ships and the men start getting ready. And um, the simile here, uh, Aeneas or Virgil uses, he compares them to ants. Oh, it's beautiful. Swarming all over the, the shores. And it's the, and beautiful. The yep, it's great. It's black ants, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're rushing from the city, something like that, and mm-hmm. going along the path. Yeah. And then this is this is the um, where Virgil breaks in with the apostrophe. Mm-hmm. And um, in uh, Lombardo's words, what was it like, Dido, to see all this? What sighs escaped your lips when from your high tower you saw the shoreline crawling with Trojans and the sea roiled with the shouts of sailors? And he just, he just kind of wonders what she's feeling in that moment, which is I can, quite interesting. Is If we think of Virgil as kind of the omniscient author right. here, he should be able to tell us exactly what Dido is feeling, right? Well, but, he's suggesting it to the reader by asking Dido the question but it, to the audience. But it's also he's also kind of suggesting that it's something, it's so, You're right. it's so deep, it's so private that not even the narrator himself can get there. Right. Yeah, that's real good. Yeah. He, he, it would be inappropriate for him to discuss her emotions because it's too mysterious. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe too painful. Hmm. Right. He also brings up improbamor, right? Mm-hmm. Dishonest love, faithless love. How does uh, Lombardo take those lines? Cruel love. Cruel. Yes. What do you not force human hearts to bear? Yes. Yeah. So again, if you're a student of Latin and you have a pencil and paper and you want to remember a very gorgeous line, this is 412. Improbamor quid non mortalia pectora cogis, right? Un, uh, what is it? I've forgotten already. We <laughs> took improba. Wicked? Wait, uh, cruel. Cruel. Yeah. Cruel love. You compel mortals, right? You compel mortals uh, to remember these things. Yeah. Yeah. Great, powerful stuff. This goes well. This is well. To me, this is way beyond Homer in many ways. Homer mm. doesn't doesn't get that personal. It's probably because tragedy has intervened. Yes. Virgil can draw on the great Greek tragedians. They hadn't had been um, written yet. Yes. Right. They themselves drew from Homer. Right. So now what happens? Now Dido speaks to Anna. Yes. And so she's she's watching all this from her tower and, and she says to you know, um, you look at them, Anna. Look at them scuttling across the shore, streaming down from every direction. The canvas can hardly wait for the breeze. So she says, these these soldiers are so these these ants, they can't wait to get going. And that's just another kind of, you know, knife in the back for her. Mm. Right. And so um uh yeah, she's she's preparing, she's starting to prepare for her own uh, for her own death. So it's this this uh, in speaking to Anna, it's it's it, it strikes me as kind of has that coolness that Aeneas Aeneas had hmm. just a moment ago. So again, she's kind of left her venom behind, and now she's kind of more like on the path. I've made a decision, and I'm going to take this to its conclusion. Yes, well, and part of the reason that she is so aloof from her sister is that she must deceive her sister, yes, so that her sister not prevent her from taking her own life. Right, 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 so right. That's how she's filling the Aeneas role because Aeneas was also engaged in a deception, right. As we talked about in the last episode, let's just sneak away under cover of night and then uh, Dado wakes up and we're all gone and nobody's the wiser. It's no problem. Right, right. She now must do the same thing to Anna. Yeah. And it's treacherous. It's very treacherous. And that, again, it reminds me very much of the relationship between Antigone and Ismene, right? Um, Antigone insists on going to kind of her, her martyrdom alone. Correct. And, uh, and has great contempt for her sister. You're too weak to die for the family. I'm the only one brave enough to do this. Exactly. Even when Ismini says, you know, don't leave me here. I'll, I'll let me go with you. Right. Mm-mm. 
No, too late. You had your chance had your to chance. show my brother loyalty. This is my you trip. lost it. Yep, mm-hmm. exactly. So there's definitely shades of that too, and I would, I would be very surprised if a, a Roman audience wouldn't have seen at right. least a glimmer of that here. Well, I think this is part of the reason why in the quote that we read, William Anderson describes this as the conventional language of the abandoned woman in the speech. So the conventionality is uh, Greek tragedy. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it looks, Jeff, like we are up against the clock. Oh, man, we, 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 we can't even get to the end of book four here? No, we can't. We're on line only 400 or 500. There's another 300 lines here. Yeah, we can't. We can't. You're right. We can't, we can't gloss give that. that uh, it's just due. She's got to climb onto the pyre that she has piled up on the top of the citadel. She has to look out at the harbor. She's got to fall on. Am I giving away too much? You might get, Yeah, save this for next time. Okay. We don't right. have time to talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> So we're gonna have to we're gonna have to look at book four in the next episode, and um, I guess if the audience doesn't like that, they don't have to listen. Yeah, exactly. We can I, I suppose we can segue uh, into book five at that point. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. All right, but Jeff, before we thank some people, can we talk Moss Method for a minute? Yeah, let's let's talk Moss Method. Okay, so we got a big sale coming up. It begins August fifteen, and uh, go to mossmethod.com, and I think I'm giving ten percent off. Yeah, ten percent off. The Moss Method for Greek. That's huge. It is. Yeah. And you get the Moffis hours. We're holding them tomorrow. You get to meet with me and Greek students from around the world, California, Australia, Hong Kong, Ireland, um, here in the United States, lots of different places, uh, and study some Greek. Fantastic. So if you want to take your Greek from not too much to a whole lot. No, no, no. That's how it goes. How does it go? It goes from neophyte to erudite. Ah, if you want to take your Greek from neophyte to erudite, that's this it. is the way to do it. You want to read Plato, the New Testament, we, uh, we run the gamut. That sounds fantastic. They go to mossmethod.com. That's correct. There's lots of free stuff they can check free out. Free stuff. Yep. And uh, I also have a Latin course you'd probably like me to share. D- do tell. Okay. So it's latinperdm.com slash LLPSI, Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata. And this is where I take students through the Hans Orberg text, the classic Familia Romana book. It's $199. I think we have 22 uh, video lessons now ranging from 30 minutes to an hour plus um, some 20 uh, office hours recorded, lots of audio. I mean, there's really no reason not to learn Latin once you tap into this resource. Fantastic. So they can find that at latinperdiem.com. Slash. Slash. L-L-P-S-I. There we go. Okay. we got some people to thank, don't we, Jeff? Yes, we do. As always, Mishka, our intrepid engineer, uh, puts it all together, makes us sound better than we actually are. Yeah, people say this this uh, podcast sounds good, that the audio quality is good. I mean, the content, forget yeah, well, about it. Yeah, but, yeah. but the audio, they, they like the quality, so that's Mishka. We're that's thankful that's for all that. Mishka. Thanks a lot. Um, we got Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin for the great music. That's right. That you hear throughout the episode. Yes. Those ripping guitars, you got to check out Scott Van Zen's uh, music lessons, learn how to play the guitar like he does, mm-hmm. Ken Tamplin Vocal Academy. Learn how to sing like he does. Yes, incredible. Yeah. And uh, so we want to hear from you. Send us some shout outs. Send us some uh, suggestions for episodes. We've got some great suggestions recently. We're going to go back to Virgil for next week. Then we're going to take a little break. We are going to take a little break. Take a little break and do something different. We're going to key up something different just to give a little bit of a a respite from Virgil because you can't appreciate literature of this quality just nonstop. Exactly. It's like binge watching a show. You got to take it like, you got to watch it, you know, one one a week. You got to pause a little bit. Pause. That's the way you you remember. That's That's the way you appreciate it. Yes. Uh, In addition to sending us email, should they get a t shirt? Of course. Yes. Yes. What do the t shirts say? You can get it's a Kwai Nokent Dokent. That's right. right, From Erasmus. Yep. With Uh, a lovely picture of Hercules holding up the world or wrestling a lion yeah 
What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yes. No can't do can't. Exactly right. Yeah. Check those out. They're, they're really sharp looking. Um, if you want to support us and if you want to uh, kind of advertise the podcast, we would love it. That's would, right. If you would buy one of those. You yeah. can find those at adnauseum.com. Don't mm-hmm. forget the V and also at latinperdiem.com. That's right. And Jeff, I think that's it. You have the gustatory parting shot. I do. And this comes from one of my favorites, Jim Gaffigan, from his book, Food, A Love Story. <laughs> he writes, there are people who eat only organic food, and then there are people who don't have tons of money to eat. I love it. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.